Hey folks, welcome to another magnificent episode in the month of November dedicated to the veterans. Dedicated to those who've made and paid the ultimate sacrifice for the sake of our nation. Um, before we get started though, if you haven't subscribed to the podcast and it's your first time listening, do so right now. I promise you, you will not regret it. Um, uh, great content all month long. Sunday through Friday, every single day, 2 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. You get to hear from another veteran for the entire month of November. Use Saturday to spend time with your family. Use the Sabbath, the day that God rested, to enjoy your family and get away from podcasts and and social media. And do what I do. I, I, I sign off every Friday for the Sabbath. And when I come back on, on Sunday, um, I, I hope the world hasn't burnt, and luckily so far the world has not burnt, so we're all good. But joining me today, Vince Scott, the founder of CyberSec GRU. Vince, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for your service, and thank you for agreeing to come on. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate being here. Well, I'm really excited to have you um, on the podcast because I think there's a lot to talk about. But before we kind of get started, tell us a little bit about your military career. What did you do? How long you were enlisted for? And 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 so forth. Well, uh, I was one of them. I uh, went to the uh, U.S. Naval Academy, graduated in 1989, uh, retired in uh, 2010 after uh, 21 years of service. I was uh, initially a surface warfare officer, so a shipboard engineer, uh, on a Knox-class frigate and then a cruiser. Uh, and then I fell into the clutches of the National Security Agency and, and spent the balance of my career as a Navy cryptologist. So a Navy cryptologist, that is a, um, you know, cryptology is a very fascinating topic. We're not going to get into cryptology today because um, we would probably bore 90% of the people that listen and the other 10% would geek out with us. That's been my experience with cryptology. Um, but what's it like to do cryptology in the Navy? Um, well, really, the, the U.S. Navy has separate officer and enlisted career fields for cryptology that go all the way back to the Second World War, uh, breaking the Japanese and German uh, naval codes. And that, uh, that history, tradition, and, and operation continues to today. Uh, so it was, uh, I think, extremely relevant. I had a fabulous time in my Navy, Navy career. I thought uh, I had outstanding opportunities to serve. Uh, I deployed eight times. Uh, I served on the ground in Iraq, Afghanistan, and Bosnia. Uh, you know, made some side trips to Kosovo and a couple other places. And so, Godforsaken uh, places was very relevant. Godforsaken places. The Balkan region is. I was in Kosovo most recently, 2016. Okay. And they still burn their garbage. Yeah, I. You know, it's really sad to see. Uh, so many places in the world devastated by violence. Uh, and I think, you know, the Balkans is, is really a great example of that. And it's also a great example uh, for us today in the United States about how hatred can really pull a country apart. It was interesting, uh, perhaps from a, from a historical perspective, to see the, the three-way racial hatred that goes on in the Balkans, uh, not two-way. And, uh, you know, I think as Americans, we could... Um, do well to remember that that that's just not the way uh, we need to find ways to, to work together and bridge the gap and, uh, you know, make ourselves a, a better country and a, and a better world. You couldn't have said it any better. 
couldn't have said it any better. I'll, 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 I want to tell you a really funny story. Um, a buddy, uh, Jonathan and I did a road trip and we decided that we were going to, um, start in Belgrade, Serbia, um, go through, uh, go to Macedonia, Kosovo, Montenegro, um, Croatia, and, 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 and kind of, you know, travel that region. I mean, Montenegro is, is absolutely beautiful. I mean, gorgeous out there. Yeah. Yeah. Pe- people like Montenegro underestimated vacation destination, very underestimated. Like people go to Croatia because of game of Thrones, right? They go to like Dubrovnik because of games yeah. of Thrones. I'm like, go to Montenegro folks, 10 times cheaper, way more fun, a lot less people. Um, and I'm one of those. I try to avoid big crowds by any stretch of the imagination. And so it was, it was, um, we, we drove and we thought that we can cross from Serbia into Kosovo, but they won't let you to get from Serbia to Kosovo. Well, I mean, now, now president Trump has brokered a peace, uh, economic deal between the two, which have essentially now allows travel between Kosovo and Serbia direct without having to go through Macedonia. But before gotcha. we had, to, we had we to had drive, to it was a six hour detour. Right around Macedonia to get through. Interesting. I didn't know that. It was it was uh, what a what a what a part of the world. And we learned in Albania when we were in Albania, we learned that when someone cuts you off there, don't say anything. Everyone is <laughs> everyone's got a M sixteen or an AK forty seven in the trunk of their car. Apparently, during the war, we over flooded them with weapons, and there's like millions and millions of weapons over there on the streets. Interesting. So. Extremely fascinating. So let's talk a little bit about your transition from the military to civilian life. What was that like? Yeah, I, you know, it was uh, challenging for me. Uh, I had actually gone away to boarding military all boys naval high school when I was 15 and, and pretty much hadn't been home and really out of uniform since then. So it, w- it was quite a long time for me uh, before. And, and I grew up in the, in that military culture, right? Starting from, from 15 years old on. And the, the, I think culture is the key word. That was the, the biggest difference. And it's not uh, better or worse. It's just different. Uh, there, there's a, uh, a certain amount of, uh, what's the right word? Getting it done in the military, maybe, or, you know, we're going to drive forward. And if somebody's upset about it, we're going to keep going. Uh, in 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 the civilian world, I think we're we're more gentle. In the business world, uh, for example, everyone has to be aligned on a decision. A lot of times, a lot of companies they want that alignment as a key word. They want to have everybody agree on a solution. In the military, that's not a thing. We don't all have to agree. Only the commanding officer has to agree. That's enough. And and so that there's just a difference in that in how you interact when you enter uh, the civilian workforce in the business world. And it really is a culture change. Uh, For me, I was somewhat lucky across my military career because uh, once I got to the National Security Agency, they had a very different culture than I had absorbed as a surface warfare officer in the Navy. And I had to adapt to that. And then in some of my subsequent tours, I had very diverse workforces and and had to really adapt, you know, foreign nationals, foreign countries, et cetera, really adapt to those different cultures. And that that helped me uh, when I transitioned. And I think 
it's particularly challenging for people. So, for example, if you're a ship driver and you do that your entire career and, you know, re you retire after, you know, your command tours and then you go off into the civilian world, uh, the, the realization of how those different cultures impact you uh, can be very challenging. It can be very challenging and frustrating to operate in those environments. And it, it can be tough. Yeah, that's a, that, that's a great point is the challenge of you are doing it from, you know, high school age. You are used to a specific structure, uh, yep. a lifestyle, a, a way of doing things. And you get out into the civilian world and all of a sudden it becomes control. I don't know if it's controlled chaos, but it's controlled chaos. <laughs> that like it's controlled chaos, but it's a little more chaotic for sure. Yeah, it's it's just, it's it's controlled chaos. I mean, whether people like it or not, it's controlled chaos. It's it's it's, it's people doing what they do. I mean, um, um, it's 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 very interesting. It's the transition, um, uh, in 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 alignment, as you said, is is very uh, negotiating. If especially if you're a high rank commanding officer, when you go to the civilian world. The negotiation of people buying into your plan is something you're not used to because you're used to saying we're going this way and everyone follows through and they right. go that way. In the civilian world, you don't always have that. You're a terrible ogre if you take that leadership approach. Um, you know, I, 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 I kind of like that leadership approach, though. I, I, Follow me I, into I, the I, abyss. I promise <laughs> we'll come out stronger on the other side you know it doesn't have to be pretty but it gets it done it gets it done right and uh yeah from, from but from a leadership perspective i think that is there, there are those different expectations in different cultures and learning to adapt to that um that not being able to take that direct route as military guys and gals we're, we're used to that direct route right the shortest distance between two points is a straight line and and not always in the civilian world that consensus need to build consensus need to work across multiple organizations uh, influence leadership i want to suggest that maybe possibly we could do what what i think we should do and wouldn't that be really good for us can be a really different approach yeah it's um um i still have a very very military mentality my wife was into idf as well and so my wife's from Israel. And so it's very, um, you know, her being in the Israeli military is completely different, by the way, from our service. Um, they argue with our commanding officers there. I found that to be extremely fascinating. Like I was in a briefing of the IDF and the lieutenant was speaking and people were arguing with the lieutenant. Now, if you've never heard Hebrew, Hebrew is spoken screaming for an American. Now, I speak fluent Hebrew. When people hear me speak Hebrew, they laugh. They go, why are you mad? And I'm like, I'm not mad. They're like, no, no, no. But 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 you were talking. I'm like, that's Hebrew. That's cultural, right? It's like speaking Arabic. Like when you, when you speak Arabic to a Syrian, you're speaking at a higher volume than you are when you're speaking to an Emirati who's at a lower volume. Emiratis are very low-key people. Syrians, on the other end, very like passionate people. And so Arabic is even spoken different. Not only is the accent different, but the way you speak is completely different. Different cultures. And that, that's a great point about 
different militaries have different cultures. And I, I think we find the same thing in the United States where the different military services have different cultures. And the, in, in many cases, the branches within those cultures uh, have significant differences in, in their approach and the way they get business done. Yeah, that's the, you're absolutely right. So you learned cryptology in the Navy and then took you over to the career to the three-letter agency. What was that like for you? And, and, um, and, and, and how, did you, um, how did you like cyber altogether? Well, I, I, I ended up going that route. I was one of the early computer science graduates from the Naval Academy. And, and even at the time when I switched over, which was 94, uh, the writing was already on the wall that, that cyber was the future, right? Uh, how we do things in IT enable uh, the world is really going to change the way we do business. Uh, and so they wanted to bring in uh, young computer science guys uh, to be a part of that process. And so I got to, to kind of grow up with that over the course of you know the next 15 years of my career and watch things change from a very you know Cold War focused, uh, organizations and uh, world uh, to to 9/11. Uh, I, I was actually the cryptologist for Special Forces on 9/11, and then went across the street to U.S. Central Command and was the uh, signals intelligence guy for uh, you know our forces in the Middle East for for quite a while. And uh, you know that was a big difference. That was that was not very Cold War. Uh, that was very much individual focus. You know, how are we chasing Al Qaeda across the world? And uh, so required a lot of changes. And it was very interesting to see uh, the, the military services adapt to that. And now I, I think we're seeing that, uh, you know, some of that adaptation we have to change back, right? Big military global conflict is back on the table. And we see uh, less about al-qaeda and an individual and more about uh nation state actors and how we interact on that stage and so uh the world turns uh, sometimes the more it changes the more it stays the same well I, th- I think the um cyber is 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 the, is the the fifth or sixth domain whatever you want to call it um you know i think what what they say space is the fifth domain and cyber is the sixth domain is that what it was i think that's the way they listed it that's the way they've listed it and and to me um, you know, you talk about big military conflict. I think we defer there, Vince. I think I think we we defer because I feel like um, the idea of a full invasion or uh, warplanes bombing civilian infrastructure is 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 long behind us. Um, uh, I feel I feel I'm like it's sure that I, I agree mean, with that. I mean, and, and that's and, and, and that's fine. I love debate, um, and, and 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 I'd love to debate it, and and we can and we will. I promise. But um, okay. but 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 yeah. I mean, I feel like cybers cybers the big six domain, and and I think one of the aspects that people always forget to talk about cyber um, is the financial repercussions of it. Um, Chris Roberts and I, and I don't know if you know who Chris is. Uh, Chris um, over at um, um, Hillbilly. Uh, squad, um, formerly of Ativo, um, and, and a few other spots. Um, we did a podcast on Friday ahead of a, ahead of a, um, a Tel Aviv University Cyber Week, which was this week. Uh, we're recording, folks, in October. This is going to air in November, so excuse us uh, for the date references. But um, and we were talking about 
the fact that any CISO who talks about data, any cybersecurity professional who talks about data is missing the point of cyber. Cyber for our opponents and our adversary um, from a corporate level, from a business level, is all about money. Um, it's purely money. Your data ain't worth nothing. Data isn't worth anything anymore because data's out there. I can get any data I want today. Spend time on the dark web. You'll find any piece of data you want. There's no piece of data that's not, not available. What about intellectual property? So intellectual property is a nation state thing. See, criminal organizations, which is predominantly... So when we look at the North Koreans and most recently the Iranian nuclear programs, um, uh, one thing I'm doing, another series we're we're doing is about APTs and foreign APTs. Um, And I've spoken to a bunch of different people as we prepare this series. And one of the things that we've noticed um, is the change in the TTPs of Iran and North Korea. So Iran and North Korea under very strict sanctions. Governments are running low on money. Um, um, Russia is no longer giving Iran money. Um, not as much as it used to financially support them through trade. When we say give company money, the Russians didn't fly $150 billion worth of pallets of cash to, to, to Tehran. Um, but what they do do is they, they support them with trade. Um, for oil rights, for natural gas rights, for a bunch of different things that are of Russian of uh, Russian geopolitical interest, in order to support the and and, and uphold the Iranian regime. Well, um, that's kind of decreased, um, especially since COVID nineteen, as more and more countries have become more inward rather than outward. And so, Iran and North Korea, especially this year, especially due to the crisis and due to what a lot of their supporters have had to 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 take on have resulted to um, financial cyber crime where they're giving quota to their teams. Now, you know, um, you can't go to your boss in in, in the Iranian uh, Islamic Revolutionary Guard and go, uh, uh, listen, boss, uh, we tried today to get $100,000. We only got 50, you know, they wouldn't pay. They wouldn't pay. What are we going to do? And and expect to show up the next day. You're probably going to disappear. Um, and your family's going to think you're in some jail in Iran, but really, you know, you're you're breaking bad in a barrel of acid somewhere. Um, and so, uh, so we're we're starting to see more of that, um, especially this year, where when you talk about IP, that's predominantly China, and China's really the biggest IP offender um, of all, because even the Russians don't really go after IP. I mean, I mean, I feel like we as Americans, as and having spent time in Russia, and I have a lot of Russian friends uh, that that have you know moved from Russia to Israel or to the U.S. Um, and and have been living here. I think like we have more in common with the Russians than we'd like to admit, and we share a specific core of values as a people to people perspective, not a government to government perspective. As a people to people perspective, we share a lot more. Um, and I was surprised to see that the number two and three most selling brands of cars in Russia were American cars. Chevy and Ford. Oh, yeah, the Russians have always liked American brands. They've been very popular over there. And I agree completely on a people to people basis. I think we do. We do actually have quite a bit in common with with Russia's, you know, from a, on the people basis. Unfortunately, at the nation state basis, we're not getting along so well. Yeah, uh, and and again, that's politics. I think that's um, 
the, the, there's aspects to that that I feel like are, are predominantly political of, of why governments don't get along. Um, anytime we've tried to do anything with Russia to kind of lower the tensions, um, it's been met with strong rebuke and then sabotaged. And so, <laughs> yeah. Well, let's circle back to I, I, you had said about it being about all about the money. And I really do w wanted to uh, say, I, I still think what, when you talk about Korea, absolutely, Iran has started to move in that direction. Russia has been about that for a very long time. It's very monetary focused, right? Um, but I do think the other uh, aspects of your of your information are important. So intellectual property is one. If I'm the CISO for a drug company, I probably care about intellectual property. Uh, and I'm concerned about uh, stealing of my trade secrets and intellectual property in order to compete with me uh, from an overseas market that doesn't care, uh, namely China and Asia. Uh, two, I think uh, data integrity is also rising mm -hmm. um, in the in the world. So so, you know, a C story wasn't me. I heard this story, but I think it's a really great story about a company in um, that with an Asian presence, Asian business unit was losing money, uh, started to talk about what it would look like to sell. Chinese company comes in with a distress bid offer. Um, as a part of the ongoing audits, though, uh, they discovered a discrepancy that eventually led to discovering that the, the financial system for the Asian business unit had been hacked. And the numbers out of that union were being suppressed by 5%. So, so that was not a, an outright theft. It was a change. It was a data integrity issue. And that 5% was the difference between that business unit winning and losing. And then guess what? You get a distressed offer. Hey, we'll take it off your hands. Understanding that that business unit is really making more money than you think it is. So I, I, I do think there are other um, opportunities. For right. Things but but, but you're... Vince, but you're talking about um, two things that um, most predominantly um, aren't focused at the board level today, which is one finance, because they attribute cyber fraud to fraud. They don't attribute it to um, to to cyber being like, oh, we could probably give this to our CISO and get rid of it and, and, and really address the issue of fraud. They predominantly still keep it under the office of the CFO or chief risk officer or even, you know, the, the general counsel. And that's where they keep fraud, which I think is, is something I've been preaching for the last year. Um, get fraud under the CISO's office. Um, and I think that gives the fraud a little bit that gives the CISO a little bit more leverage. Um, because what ends up happening is in a lot of organizations, if it's the office of the CFO or the general counsel, they end up having to go down to the cyber team and go, hey, we need all these logs. So might as well keep it there and let them handle it. Um, well, or they don't go ask, right? I, I certainly have run across that issue where um, the the fraud departments of financial institutions are, are stuck in the 1980s uh, with their fraud processes and their their inability to engage with uh, the CISO in the modern context and look at this from a cyber enabled fraud is a real problem. Yeah. Um, kind of staying on that topic. So um, you've founded your own company. You've become an entrepreneur. What, what, what's driven you to entrepreneurship? Yeah, I'm actually, I'm actually on my fourth entity now. So I I've started uh, two companies and two not-for-profits. Uh, my first company was uh, pretty much a failure, but a learning experience. Uh, I've uh, started uh, two pro not-for-profits. I would call one a failure and one a, a success. I actually started a not-for-profit to um, 
uh, raise money and pull the city together for the commissioning of USS Cincinnati when I uh-huh. lived there. Uh, and that was that was a lot of fun. And we did some great work. And I think we, we did some great stuff for the crew. Uh, and then my most recent uh, uh, entrepreneurial venture is Defense Cybersecurity Group, where I'm focused on the new defense industrial base DOD cyber standards and the requirements uh, for them to be audited, which means companies that haven't been serious about this for a very long time uh, are now really going to have to get serious about it. Audits are coming. Uh, you have to have a program. And uh, there's a lot, unfortunately a lot of defense industrial based companies out there that don't. Yeah, that's been uh, one of those where every time they say we're going to um... We're going to enforce it on this date. They push it back another six months and then another six months. And it gets keep the rockets keep putting push the rock. The rock keeps getting pushed back, but uh, not anymore. Know. Not anymore. Yeah. To the new CISO for um, the DOD, Katie Arrington. She has uh, she has been executing her timeline uh, as advertised. I've been very impressed by that. There's certainly been problems in uh There's a lot of people who would like to push back on that altogether, but uh, I think it's been a, a great success in getting the, uh, the defense industrial base focused on the issues and actually starting to drive some change where companies are going, okay, I really have to do this stuff now. Yeah, that's um, that, that's really important. Um, the CMMC is, is, is critical. I, I serve on the board of FCA here in Atlanta, and we... Um, okay. We, we constantly talk about uh, CMMC. Um, it's, well, it's, and another new one for, for out there is really that in the new rule change, right, is the having to submit a self-assessment against the existing NIST 800-171 requirement. And I, I think that's going to be a heavy lift for a lot of companies and the accountability for that on we won't issue you any new uh contract awards post 30 november unless you have that self-assessment in uh is a great step in the right direction yeah lots of work there so um as we wrap up today's interview let me ask you this what's one thing you loved about your military service what's one fond memory you have what's one fond memory i i think i loved service i i really liked the service before self aspect of it Uh, I went in, felt like I was I was really making a difference on a on a pretty large stage every day, and I think a lot of veterans feel that way, and that can be hard to pull into into your civilian experience, right? Um, so for me, uh, service is the word. Service is the word, Vince. I want to thank you so much for coming on the podcast and sharing uh, what you did. Thank you for your service. Um, um, we really, I uh, think it's, it's it's amazing, and and you're still continuing that service by helping. Um, you know, the businesses that don't have the capability, um, to go Hopefully. out there and get that done. Yeah. Um, I, I think you'll be, you'll be fairly successful. You seem like a sharp guy and, 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 and you know what they say, you learn more from failure than success. And so fail 10 times, but succeed once and make that success a grand slam home run and life will be sweet from there on out. Thanks James. I really appreciate the invite to be here today. Brilliant. Folks, so Vince Scott, another veteran, another amazing story for the month of November, and a veteran who became an entrepreneur. And I think that's one thing that we often limit ourselves when we talk about what are we going to do after the service. Um, I know I went down the employee route for about four or five years before I decided to be an entrepreneur. I've now been an entrepreneur since 2010. Um, so now just over a decade I've, I've started 
companies that have been extremely successful, others that have been not so successful, meaning you know, they failed. And, and, and that's just part of the risk of entrepreneurship. And that's part of the risk of really uh, anything. But when you're from the military, your, your ability to succeed is greater because of the, the discipline we get, because of all the different tools we have, and because of the network we have, because of our critical thinking abilities. If there's one thing you learn in the military that you never get on a college degree, is critical thinking. And I think critical thinking and hard work are two things that no college can ever teach you, but those are two skills that are earned in the military. And so just persevere and, and, and find that passion that you have, that drive, and, and just poke it and get it, and you'll get it. That's it for today's episode. We'll have more every single day, 2 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, every single day. You can find us on YouTube, on LinkedIn, on Facebook, on Twitter. Episodes go live. Don't miss. It's 2 p.m. Take a half hour. Fix yourself a plate of lunch. Grab a beer, a scotch. It's going to be five o'clock somewhere when I put it at 2 p.m. And so, you know, somewhere in the middle of, uh, of the Atlantic, maybe in Iceland. So to our Icelandic friends, pop open a beer, listen to uh, today's episode. And for all of those, uh, uh, everyone else, thanks so much for tuning in. We'll be back with many more episodes this month. We have 26 of these, so you don't want to miss even one of them because they're all special. Uh, Vince, thank you so much. Folks, we're signing off. Until next time, stay healthy, stay cyber safe. Thank you.